Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And a very warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black If you think the ABC's left wing, don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am streaming and 3CR digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! Good morning. Good morning, everyone. Yes, it actually is quite a good morning. I know it is actually quite nice outside. Usually we have something to complain about. No, that's right. So this is Annie. Oh, and Kim. Yeah, that's right. And uh, today, uh, lots of things have happened uh, leading up to this Saturday morning. We've had things like the budget. Exciting. Exciting. We've got things to say about that. Uh, we've uh, Today's program, uh, we're going to talk uh, TPP, that's Trans-Pacific Partnership. I, uh, there was a speech uh, talk uh, down at the uh, lower... Uh, room at the Melbourne Town Hall on the 21st of April and uh, one of the speakers, which not the speaker that we're going to focus on today, but one of the speakers said that in New Zealand they call it the TPPA, which was the Trans uh, Take People's, uh, what was it? Take People's... Oh, well. Purses. <laughs> yeah, I've lost, I've forgotten it. Uh, oh, no, that's, oh, I'll find it, I'll find it, but I forgot. Or we'll make up something better in the meantime. Meantime, that's exactly right. But anyway, the person we're going to talk to or hear from is Dr. Deborah Gleeson. She's a lecturer in public health at La Trobe University School of Public Health, and uh, they've been doing uh, investigations into how it, the TPP will affect uh, people's uh, health and well-being, uh, which is quite an interesting approach. So we'll hear her speech, and uh, later on we're going to also look at May Day. Uh, I know Stick Together did a good job. They went around and Dennis went and talked to lots of people at uh, the May Day march, but we spoke to some other people. And uh, also I caught the uh, speech, one of the major speeches given by the uh, CFMEU man, uh, at the uh, May Day March. So uh, we'll hear that after eight. Yes, and I think I was, me and Annie were both there and somehow managed to miss each other. Yes, so it was a big crowd. Yes, <laughs> big enough for us to lose ourselves that's in awesome. any way. <laughs> that's exactly right. And uh, this is the week that was. And later on, we're going to have a chat with Dr. Noah Pazil. He's been off uh, baby caring and uh, being a big time academic, but he's come back to our to us and we're going to have a chat to him about the uh well lots of things but one of the things we wanted to concentrate on was uh the uh New Guinea Supreme Court's decision that uh, yes indeed it's illegal to hold people in jail when they actually haven't done anything. Mm. Yeah. That surprises me actually given the 
you know. <laughs> given, yeah, given the state of affairs. In Australia. Yeah, the poor old refugees. And uh, I was beginning to think we didn't have any rights. Well, they less. Yeah, but then it's really interesting. The reaction of the our government has been, but we paid you big lots of money. Well, there you go. Uh, neoliberalism and uh, the post-colonial experience continues. And uh, uh, also, uh, so, you know, that's the program. So you can decide to turn off right now or you can uh, stay tuned. <laughs> if you're happy with our brief summary. <laughs> I am not in love, but I'm open to persuasion. When you think of community, uh, think of 3CR. When you think of radio, think of 3CR. This is Joan Armour Trading asking you to support your community radio station, 3CR, the only alternative. Well, before we uh, go to uh, Dr. Deborah Gleeson, uh, who's going to talk about TPP and uh, its uh, effects on our well-being, there's other things that we should take into consideration about sort of budget cuts, what came out in the budget, which was quite extraordinary. And one of them was uh, that the uh, it hasn't been given a lot of coverage, I'll have to say, but sitting on a seat in a studio in a community radio station, we cannot avoid it which is that they this time there's going to be cuts to the funding to community radio and the uh, money that's required for digital transmission. And in uh, this time they've done it. It's a piddling amount for them, but uh, it's a huge amount for the community radio sector. And uh, for Melbourne, uh, just in Melbourne, that will affect us, 3CR, uh, 3KND, 3ZZZ, SIN FM, 3RRR and 3PBS. So uh, the at the same time, the commercial broadcasters have been given millions of dollars of cuts to their licence fees. So now, I mean, which part of... Uh, obviously, the commercial uh, broadcasters are going to be uh, fans of the LNP, but... Uh, well, you know, there's this huge long election campaign that we have to suffer through. Who is going to make us suffer through all this, if not for the mainstream media? Exactly, exactly. So... He's uh, He knows which side of the bread to butter because it's not very likely that the community radio sector is going to be his biggest fans. So uh, this gives us a chance to uh, tell you about uh, our upcoming Radiothon, of course, because the uh, uh, media landscape would be just pathetic without community radio. Mm. It would just be pathetic. If uh, the uh, community, the influence that community radio has had, not just in terms of uh, opinion shaping by giving people information that is just completely left out of any discussion in the mainstream, but the actual uh, shape of the media has changed because of community uh, broadcasting. Even the mainstream has been affected by this. Mm. I mean, have you? I did hear though the Australian was talking about Australian workers. And oh, it was, yeah, it was very worried about their interests, and it was so happy. Really? Yes, because this budget is a budget for workers because it gives money to business. 
Really? So that, that, that so was the, just where I stopped there, but that was basically their argument that this workers, Australian workers are huge winners from this because they're giving all these handouts to small businesses and that they'll therefore give them jobs, which we know is rubbish. Yeah, so they're still holding on to the teddy bear of the trickle-down effect. Yeah, I don't, think they, I don't think they even mention that. They just say these things blatantly. Just yeah. blatant lines without without um, explaining them. Yeah. So if they the Goebbels uh, effect, say it off enough and people will believe it. Mm. Yeah. Outrageous. Because of course, when they put in this notion of uh, uh, four dollar uh, internships, you know, people uh, think that what they're talking about might be perhaps what's been going on, a rot that's been going on for quite a while now, where you've got people who are. University uh, graduates or uh, students who uh, work for companies so that they can gloss up their CVs. Well, that's, you know, you can almost imagine that that would have a beneficial effect for the individual in their future endeavours, right? Mm. Although it's a shame job not to pay people for any work. Well, I thought that under the law that. Uh, internships in Australia were meant to be paid. Well, that's right. And that they weren't covered by things like public liability insurance if they weren't paid Well, that's paid exactly interns. right. Yeah. Well, it's a scam anyway. It's a, just a straight-out blatant scam. But do you know what uh, this budget has been saying? That that $4 internship is actually for things like working for supermarkets and waiting tables. I mean, it's you know what it's really called? It's called slave labour. Yes, exactly. Incredible stuff. Like Australia is really going through a frustrating period. Well, it's just more handouts to um, business, isn't it? Because you give them all this money for cheap labour. Well, it's a bit like giving money to private uh, schools. You know, you don't actually have to... Normally, when you give money, the government gives money to things, they've actually got a controlling influence, right? Mm. But uh, that doesn't appear to follow through. That logic doesn't follow through when it comes to private schools. And also the idea that uh, a person gets paid a lot of money as a CEO because if anything goes wrong, then they will fall on their sword. That, that's a furphy too. That's an old story that doesn't exist anymore, right? We're in this... Yeah, they all do the Christopher Scase yeah. Dash. Yeah. But also, but it, it's become, um, what is it? It's Turnbull's new economic order, right? Anyway, move. let's move right along and uh, hear what uh, Dr. Deborah Gleeson's got to say about the TPP and uh, let's hope you don't get too sad. It's now my pleasure to introduce Dr Deborah Gleeson, who is a lecturer in public health at La Trobe University's School of Psychology and Public Health. Her research focuses on the intersection between trade policy and public health. She's been undertaking research on the Trans-Pacific Partnership Agreement over the last five years and received a President's Award last year from the Public Health Association for Public Health Leadership, Engagement and Commitment to the Impact of International Trade Issues on health. Uh, thank you very much, Deborah. Over to you. Thank you very much, Kelvin, and um, and thank you very much for the organi- to the organisers for having me along tonight. Um, before I go any further, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land and pay my respects to the elders, past and present. 
And um, thank you all so much for coming along tonight. It's very heartening to people like me and Jane who've been worrying about the TPP for a long time to see so many people who are also concerned about it. Um, health academics and health non-government organisations in Australia have been concerned about the TPP since the first US proposals were leaked um, at around this, this stage in 2011. And subsequent leaks of several different parts of the TPP actually confirmed our concerns and we've remained concerned throughout the negotiations and after we saw the final text of the TPP. In 2013, a group of academics like me and, um, and a group of health organisations got together and did a health impact assessment of the TPP. A health impact assessment is a recognised method for studying the potential impacts on people's health of policies in any, any field, um, not just health policies. Of course, we had to rely on leaked texts from the agreement because there were no official texts. And although we'd been talking frequently to the negotiators and going to many of the negotiating rounds for the TPP, we only had a vague idea of what was actually being discussed in many chapters. We studied the potential impacts on health in four different areas. The cost of medicines, tobacco control, food labelling and alcohol policy. And we found that there was a lot of cause for concern in many different chapters of the TPP for the types of health, health policies that we could introduce in all of those areas. You know, how we would keep medicines affordable for Australians. How we would make sure that our gains in um, reducing the number of smokers would continue into the future making sure that we had um, strong policies curtailing the efforts of the industry to um, you know, recruit uh, younger people to drinking and, um, and also to be able to have uh, good policies around nutrition to try and curb the rising rates of obesity and non-communicable diseases. So what we've found since then, since we did that health impact assessment, is that some of the provisions that were originally proposed by the US for the TPP have been removed or watered down. But what we see in the final text still has, has plenty of cause for concern. So I'm going to talk about the two areas where our main concerns reside in the final text of the TPP. Our first main concern is the investor state dispute settlement um, provision. Now, we were actually very pleased to find when we saw the final text for the TPP that countries can opt to exclude their tobacco control measures from investor state dispute settlement. So countries like Australia, and Australia has indicated that it's going to use this safeguard, they can opt to prevent tobacco companies from suing governments over tobacco control policies in the way that Philip Morris Asia has sued Australia for our tobacco plane packaging laws. So this is a win for public health. But when we examined the fine print of the TPP, we found that there are no other concrete exemptions for other public health issues or parts of our health system. There are some attempts at having legal safeguards in the TPP, 
to try and make it less likely that a corporation would win if it launched a case against a government over a health issue. But all of the safeguards that we've seen are weak or they contain loopholes that mean that corporations can still launch cases in all areas of health policy except for tobacco control. So we feel that this leaves our health system exposed and really could have quite a, a significant effect on our ability to implement um, public health legislation in future. Earlier leaked drafts of the TPP showed that the Australian government was trying to negotiate ex exemptions for specific Australian health programs, including Medicare and the Pharmaceutical Benefits Scheme. So they were trying to get the other countries to agree that investor-state dispute settlement wouldn't apply to Medicare or to the PBS. But in the final text of the TPP, those exemptions were gone. Our second big area of concern is access to affordable medicines. Now, there are three key issues for Australia. One is the area of biologic medicines, which I'll talk about in a moment. And this is the area where um, the US could apply a lot of pressure to Australia to extend monopolies on very expensive medicines. There are also a, a whole raft of other pharmaceutical provisions that could lock in the monopolies that we already have in place in Australia, making it more difficult for us to change our laws in future to make medicines more affordable. The worst part of the picture for me is that the TPP will have a really severe impact on other countries in our region, poor countries like Vietnam, that already really struggle to provide access to medicines to their populations. And this is really the part of the TPP that keeps me awake at night and has kept me working on this for five years. First, the issue of biologic medicines. Now, biologics are medicines that are produced through biological processes and they include a lot of new treatments for conditions like cancer and rheumatoid arthritis. Many of them are very, very expensive. So a lot of them cost in the hundreds of thousands of dollars per patient per year. And a good example is um, a recently available treatment for melanoma called Keytruda, which cost over 150,000 per person per year until it was listed on the Pharmaceutical Benefit Scheme. Of course, we're very lucky to have the PBS in Australia, which means that a prescription for Keytruda now costs, what is it, I think $37.70, or um, much less than that if you have a concession card. Now, one of the, the key offensive interests of the United States in the TPP was to secure longer monopolies on these drugs. And they tried to do this through a mechanism which is a little bit different to a patent. It's called data protection, and it's a monopoly on the clinical trial data that the company submits to the regulatory agency like the, the TGA. So I won't go into the technical details because I'll put you all to sleep. But um, the important thing to know is that the, at the moment in Australia, we have a five-year period of data protection. And during that five years, a generic manufacturer or what we call biosimilar manufacturer in the case of biologics can't register a cheaper alternative form of the drug um, for sale in Australia. So we currently have five years, and the United States was asking for 12 years. Now, all of the countries resisted that 12-year period 
and the US backed down to eight years in the final stages of the negotiations. <laughs> our, um, our, our trade minister at the time, Andrew Robb, um, did us proud in some ways because uh, in the final days of the negotiations, the US pushed very, very hard for that eight years and Andrew Robb held out for about three days and held the negotiations up while that issue was sorted out and uh, came back to Australia and said, we, we didn't give in. We, we, we agreed um, on five years and we're not going to lengthen the monopolies in Australia. We were very pleased to hear that but we knew that um, with when it comes to trade agreements, the devil is very much in the detail. I know that's a terrible cliche, but it's true. And when we saw the final text of the TPP, what we saw was not um, something that, that sort of sets in concrete that Australia doesn't have to lengthen that five-year period, but there are t there's very ambiguous wording that actually um, provides two different options, either an eight-year period or a five-year period with some very vague wording about um, alternative measures um, that, that uh, provide an equivalent period of market protection. So what we're very concerned about is that the ambiguity of that wording, which was obviously meant to help the negotiations conclude and resolve the, this you know, loggerhead between Australia and the United States, we're worried that that ambiguity will actually backfire, that the US will has quite a bit of room to pressure Australia and other countries uh, to make up that eight years through other mechanisms. And Jane mentioned before that um, you know the US is, is sending a delegation to discuss how Australia is going to implement that part of the agreement in particular amongst other key issues that the US Congress is not happy about. So pressure could be applied even before the TPP comes into force and it could also be applied through disputes um, after the TPP is in place. Okay, so that's the issue of biologics and that's really the biggest issue in terms of access to medicines for Australia. If we, um, if we do accept longer monopolies on biologic medicines, It'll cost our pharmaceutical benefits scheme hundreds of millions of dollars each year. And we know from past experience that when costs go up for the pharmaceutical benefits scheme, generally co-payments also go up. And there's a, a large body of research that shows that when co-payments go up, it's the sickest and poorest people amongst us that suffer the most. Uh, I won't go too much into the other pharmaceutical provisions, but... In most other areas um, of the TPP, what's in the TPP is already consistent with what's in Australian law when it comes to pharmaceuticals. So the TPP won't actually require um, any changes setting aside the issue of biologics. But many of the uh, TPP pharmaceutical provisions could make it more difficult to adjust our laws in future to respond to rising medicine costs. And this is at a time when we're seeing some really astronomically expensive drugs come on the market. Drugs like um, the new, treatment, new treatments for hepatitis C, um, which can cost up to $1,000 a tablet. Um, you know, very, very, very expensive medicines. We're kind of moving into a different era 
in terms of the types of medicines that are coming on the market. We need to maintain maximum flexibility to make sure that those medicines are affordable. The Productivity Commission is currently conducting an inquiry into Australia's intellectual property arrangements. They're looking at some of these um, legal and, and regulatory issues that impact on the cost of medicines. And here we are signing up to something that locks us into the current state of affairs. Of course, developing countries are going to be impacted much more than Australia. And there are, is a whole raft of pharmaceutical provisions in the TPP that will restrict access to life-saving medicines such as HIV and cancer treatments in developing countries. With colleagues, I did a study looking at the um, 2014 proposals from the US for the TPP, and we found that if they had been implemented, and the final product is not very different to these, that HIV treatment coverage in Vietnam, so the, number, the proportion of people who have HIV and are eligible for treatment, which is currently 68%, could um, more than half to about 30% under the TPP. The actual situation is worse than that because some of the, um, the big funders, like the Global Fund, are pulling out their, um, their funds from Vietnam because it's moving up into the middle-income country and it's not seen as so deserving anymore. So men this means that something like 45,000 people who currently are able to access HIV treatment, life-saving treatment, without which they will die, um, may not have access to it under the TPP. Developing countries um, negotiated transition periods for some of what the US was asking for, but these transition periods are very short. And it's very unlikely that they'll develop significantly in that time and suddenly be able to provide access to affordable medicines. As I said, I think this is the, the, you know, the most important issue of all when it comes to the TPP and something that I'm really trying to impress on Australian parliamentarians. I think that we have a very big responsibility towards other countries in our region to make sure that we don't um, put things in place that will prevent people from living healthy lives. So to summarise our concerns about the TPP, because I've probably gone on for too long, um, we're concerned about the inadequate legal safeguards when it comes to inv investor state dispute settlement. Although there's one concrete exemption for tobacco control, other public health and environmental policies are still exposed. And from an access to medicines perspective, the TPP is a very poor deal indeed. Ambiguous provisions on biologics leave lots of room for the US to continue to try to lengthen monopolies, and this would add hundreds of millions to our PBS. We're also facing locking in our existing arrangements, making it more difficult to provide affordable medicines in future. And then we've got the developing countries to think about as well. In addition to the areas that I've talked about tonight, there are many other parts of the TPP that could have an impact on public health. And this needs careful scrutiny by teams of experts. And it needs evidence-informed public debate. So the Public Health Association of Australia is calling for independent impact assessment of the TPP, including health and human rights impact assessment. And we're also asking parliamentarians to oppose the implementing legislation for the TPP unless such independent assessments carried out. Thanks very much.
And that was indeed Dr. Deborah Gleeson, and she was a lecturer, or she is a lecturer, in public health at La Trobe University School of Public Health, and she was speaking at a TPP talk, a Trans-Pacific Partnership talk, that was held at the Melbourne Town Hall on April the 21st. In uh, so, as we, the reason for why there are more and more of these. Uh, lectures going on, of course, is because uh, different uh, countries that are involved in this, I think it's 21 countries, they have to take this to their parliaments for enabling uh, legislation. And ours is coming up. And uh, more and more people are becoming less and less happy about the idea of the TPP and its stranglehold on... uh, as uh, Dr. Deborah Gleeson said, uh, set in stone, uh, make it impossible to actually alter your positions over time. And sue you if you do. Yeah, that's exactly right. And, uh, and as she pointed out, the, uh, oh well, actually, one of the speakers pointed out that uh, actually it's not a level playing field. Uh, the uh, Ameri- American government looks at all the different legislation that uh, is existent in other people's countries and then goes through them to uh, say to people, you need to alter this or we're not happy. And they actually go out of their way to change local legislation in order to tailor themselves to the needs of the United States. How fantastic. Yeah, that's right. We live in the wonderful world of um, American uh, uh, imperialism And uh, as people have said about the TPP, actually what it's really about is aligning countries against China. Getting everyone on the same war footing or whatever it is for the future. Yeah, whatever it is in the future. Um, That leads, of course, to the idea, does, uh, does capitalism need a war in order to keep itself going? More exciting things for capitalism's future. Yeah, that's exactly right. But, of course... uh, uh, we can be the anchor. We can be the uh, anchor that drags on the, in the sand to make the ship stop and then perhaps change its direction. Now, as always on uh, Solidarity Breakfast when we're at the helm, we like to uh, focus a little bit more carefully on uh, working uh, people's uh, stories. And uh, we were doing rank and file, but Marcus has gone off. He's gone off to live a life for a while and I haven't been able How to... How dare he? Yeah, and I haven't been able to wrangle him in, you know. So uh, in the future, hopefully we'll get Marcus Harrington back to do rank and file. But uh, in lieu of that, we have to come up with our own stuff. And I went off to May Day just like uh, Dennis did from Stick Together and uh, and so did you. Yes, yeah. I just I hid from Annie the whole time. That's that's true. right. She was playing catch me, catch me if you can. Uh, anyway, so here's some of the stuff that I got from May Day. I spoke to a woman, the first person that's in our box pop. Uh, she said to me, "When are you going to be on? Because I want to hear this. This is very important stuff. And if you listen to her, it is indeed very important stuff." And uh, your boy here, Okoro. Uh, from West Footscray is right here to share our love and um, happiness together. And everybody gonna enjoy the moment we're gonna have together. And I'm happy to dance for you guys. 
As much as you want, I'm going to dance. <laughs> yeah, um, we're here for, for the rural reality and the, the workers' day. And uh, hope everyone's going to enjoy the day. Thank you. Tell me about your, why you're here today. Right, well, my name's Alison Thorne. I'm a workplace delegate with the Community and Public Sector Union and I'm here today with the Freedom Socialist Party. Uh, and one of the things that we're particularly doing is distributing um, a statement in solidarity with community and public sector union members who've been battling for two years now for new enterprise agreements. Um, what CPSU members are up against uh, is a repressive bargaining framework from the government that requires agency heads to strip away a generation of hard-fought working conditions, um, exclude union rights from agreements um, and all in return for a less than CPI uh, pay offer. Um, and on top of that, there's recently been um, a ruling um, in the Fair Work Commission um, which uh, is uh, preventing members from taking protected industrial action for a three-month period. Um, so the first day that we can legally notify protected action is, surprise, surprise, the 3rd of July, um, which is, of course, um, the day after the anticipated election. So I'm here today um, on May Day um, to network and to build support um, for our struggle um, amongst other unionists. Long live May Day. Well, you've decided to come this year. Do you want to tell me why you've come? Um, well, we've come here today to fight for our right to protest. Um, the laws that are coming in across the nation are going to stop us from coming out on the street and telling people what we're upset about and why we're upset and the solutions that we, the people, have. They want to, they want to stop our voices and they're not listening to us so far, so we're going to scream louder. So Anonymous sees that uh, May Day, May the 1st, Workers' Action Day, is a perfect place to come to talk about this issue. Well, it's our international day of protest. What better day to come out and show who we are and what we stand for? I was curious. Yeah, you're just curious. Are you a member of a union at all? Uh, no, I'm not a member of any particular group, but... Yeah, I guess I was just interested for for even years, you could say. And I guess seeing all this stuff kind of going on, I just guess I wanted to see it for myself. And I'll, I'll be honest, it really makes sense that these people want to actually fight for something. I ask you about who you are and why you're here today. Okay, so uh, we represent uh, Thai teachers. Uh, we are here to study uh, the example of, of uh, Australia. And uh, so we today we participate to the... Um, to the marsh because we think it's very important uh, to have an union because all together we can uh, make the change. Okay, tell me about uh, why you're here today. Go on, you tell me. Why I'm here? We're here because it's the International Workers' Day, it's the day for socialism. We have to start rebuilding the trade union movement and what better way to do it than by, you know, remembering the past fights and, you know, learning the lessons and, you know, fighting on in the future. And you're part of the CFMEU? Yep. I am. Yeah. I am, yeah, yeah, I'm um, part of the CFMU. I'm just a rank and file member. Um, yeah. Well, there's nothing just about that. It's true. Good point. You've got a point. And I'm not just a labourer, I'm a bloody BL, so, you know. <laughs> <laughs> can, you, can you tell me why you're here today? 
we're here to support the Mayday Rally and bring my uh, daughter to come and see probably her 10th rally. Yeah. Okay, and so obviously you're a long-term uh, comer to this rally, so... Yeah, I've been coming for the last 20 years. Yeah? Yep. And why is it so important to you? Oh, it's just part of uh, signifying from where our wages and conditions and all that come from all those years ago. They're right for an eight-hour day, all those sort of things. Very much so. It's friendly too. And it's friendly. Everyone's pretty friendly here, yep. The next speaker is Steve Roach from the CFMEU. Thank you very much. Thank you, comrades. Uh, it's a great opportunity to um, share a few things of goings-on. You would have read some of it in the media. You certainly wouldn't have heard about all of it. But nonetheless, um, I wanted to talk not just about the CFMEU and the tax on the CFMEU, but it's a broader trade union movement too. Because we're being tackled because we have good concentration of membership in our core industry and we've been effective in uh, attaining wages and conditions for workers, as have other unions have in their respective industries. But they've come after us in a big way and uh, I must say that in the 16 years I've been at the CFMEU we have been under siege. Because when I started um, we had the, role, uh, the uh, Coal Royal Commission we had something like $60 million spent to establish the fact that uh, building workers swear, that um, sometimes they've got tattoos and they're rough-looking fellas. Um, I don't know what else they really established, but I do know they established the ABCC after that. And we had nothing but trouble with a state-sponsored police force running around, chipping people because they had a union sticker on their hat or their car had union stickers on it and they weren't allowed to park their car in the uh, company car park and all this sort of nonsense. And the reality of it is it was contrary to what the public were being told by their, the, um, the friends of big business which are effectively the commercial media today. And it's unfortunate that the same people are still selling the, uh, telling the same lies about unions about what they do, about what they shouldn't be doing, and so on and so forth. So, look, I'll, I'll just concentrate a couple of points on uh, what our federal government are doing at the moment in relation to the Australian Building and Construction Commission. And it's a little bit more than that, but uh, we'll just start with it. The, they want to establish an ABCC. In uh, 2012, some seven years after the Labor Party were elected, uh, sorry, some five years after the Labor Party were elected federally, they, uh, they abolished the then ABCC, but they set up what is the Fair Work Building Commission. 
And this mob are still running around. They don't chase up uh, unpaid wages for workers. They're not worried about sham contracting. They don't care about Phoenix uh, companies being set up again and again and again by some of the biggest scumbags got put breath into. But they were concerned that a union official hasn't put in the right form with 24 hours notice to enter the workplace and they're going to have to bang them up. And their good mates at the Herald Sun will run a big front page story about the union bully boys and the union thuggery and that when officials are simply trying to get onto the job to deal with the day-to-day issues that affect trade union members. And people need to understand this isn't, these aren't laws and rules designed just to impede us because uh, we're just people they don't like. This is about prohibiting working people from having their official on the job when they need them. There is no, there is no need to give 24 hours notice to deal with the majority of problem with problems that occur on the job. And the only reason I can think of to give anyone 24 hours notice would be to make sure that they're in fact going to be there when you get there. But apart from that, they use these uh, laws and uh, these obscure rules and uh, bureaucratic technicalities to impede officials from doing the job that their members expect them to do. Now, just to make a couple of points, because the ABCC isn't the only issue here. It's also there's a code attached to the legislation. And what the code does... The code means that when the union negotiates on behalf of its members with the employers and the industry, they are prohibited from uh, negotiating certain items, such as the right to set maximum hours. Now, I would have thought, knowing the formation of the union movement in this country, was formed around the issue of hours of work, because employers have a propensity to work people excessively and then sit back and wonder why... Uh, people are keeling over from fatigue and, and, uh, and stress. But the simple fact is that we formed unions in this country generally around issues like hours of work and we have now a federal government who think it's their role in prohibiting us from having a provision in a legally binding agreement that says you can't work a person that many hours. The other issue is the right to set apprenticeship ratios and it used to be quite a common thing for a lot of trade unions to have apprenticeship ratios to ensure that there were sufficient numbers of people coming through the ranks and that younger people had the opportunity to take up the skills training that was required for the job that they chose to do. Without, without apprenticeship ratios, we will be short of qualified tradespeople coming into their respective field. But worse yet is the loss of opportunity for young people to better their own lives. And it throws all the power straight to the, to the, uh, to the feet of the employers. And finally, what they want to do is take away the RDO calendar. And for those who are unfamiliar with the construction industry, we have an RDO calendar because that's the way the industry works and it's the only way to ensure that the workers in the industry take their... their their allocated time off, their, uh, their rostered day off. Now, from time to time, people work them regardless and there's certain circumstances that may fit in. But if you don't have a general calendar, then they will disappear. And that is what the federal government are seeking to do. The so-called family-friendly federal government want to take away a worker's right to have time off 
even though they've worked that time and haven't been paid for it. Disgraceful. Uh, finally, I just um, I want to have a look at a couple of the things the government don't look at. They've, they've just spent $80 million on this phony Royal Commission with their Liberal Party stooge mate setting the parameters and running the Commission. They were leaking to the press, a press that was determined to run the Murdoch line on trade unionism. That Business are the goodies and unions are the baddies. You only have to pick up a Herald Sun to see the narrative. The workers are the baddies and business are the goodies. The libs are the goodies and labour are the baddies. And that simple-minded twattle is being thrust down the throat of people across this state day after day after day. It makes you wonder why our state Labor government even bother advertising in that crap paper. What, are, what we'd like them to think about concentrating on are companies that go bust owing $137 million per year in unpaid wages and superannuation. We'd like them to look at the exploitation and abuse of 1.2 million temporary visa workers currently in Australia. We'd like them to look at the widespread use of sham contracting arrangements that gets employers out of paying people's leave and uh, superannuation entitlements and take away their right to set minimum standards of work with a level of job security that ensures they have the right to continue into the future and know that their kids are going to have a workplace worth working, walking into. These are the sort of issues that we elect representatives and pay them to do. And yet they think their job is to pander, suck and crawl to the big end of town and to represent solely business interests at the expense of Australian workers and their families and the people they love. So I'd ask people to, um, to remember this May Day, that uh, like uh, other unions before us and many more yet to come, we have a struggle that we need to take up. It is not a struggle that we choose, it is one that we must take up to ensure that the future generations of Australians have a decent uh, background and landscape with which to work work proudly, work with the with a, uh, uh, pay and conditions, amply reward them and ensure that their children have something useful for the future. Thank you for your time, comrades. Workers of the World Unite. Well, there you go. That was uh, the May Day on, uh, obviously, Sunday, May the 1st, and uh, that in the background is the fabulous uh, 
brass band. Uh, well, no, it's a pipe band. It's a pipe yeah, band. I heard the pipers. I didn't actually get to see them. I mean, that happens quite often, though. You yeah, hear yeah. them, but you can't see them. Well, it's a fantastic thing. And uh, actually, it was great walking through the city because uh, there was a lot of crowd reaction to the march. And I actually got to see quite a few people clapping as they were going past and stuff like that. Uh, I don't think that... Um, uh, I, I think people are happy to see, in general, that there is a fight back. Because yeah. I don't think people are very happy at the moment. I think um, people have sort of forgotten traditions and really they need the union movement to take a lead. Yeah, I think so too. Yeah. Uh, we're going to have uh, coming up next is uh, This is the Week That Was. But uh, there are a few things that you might like to know about. Oh, you've got something, haven't you? Yes, um, this was more uh, something that I thought was interesting or rather depressing from the budget, <laughs> um, the cut to the company tax rate. Um, and some journalists have um, had a go at giving us an idea of what this actually means. So uh, Turnbull's corporate tax cuts are going to cost about $106 billion um, bananas over 10 years. Um, or 11.5 submarines. So people have started counting how much this is going to cost in uh, real-life things that we can kind of quantify. Um, so it would uh, cost the equivalent of uh, 320 hospitals um, or um, 9.6 million um, heli flights. Oh, um, these are go. just things in um, that have been talked about um, quite often in recent politics. It could also build 64 stadiums or it could buy you 3.3 billion coffees, <laughs> which is about how many I feel like I need this morning. Yeah, which is funny because uh, the other thing is that uh, Nick Xenophon, the uh, South Australian senator, has just said that uh, he is actually appalled, and I'll have to say lots of people are appalled as well, but the uh, contract to Spain to build uh, the next load of uh, ships. Oh, it's France? No, Spain. Spain? Oh. Yeah, to Spain. Not one of, uh, not one Australian job will come out of the Australian investment of uh, millions and millions of dollars into the, that contract. Well, it's incredible as well because uh, with the French one as well, they were talking about they think that that's going to be something like 3,000 jobs for people in France and that's kind of news to people in Australia. Well, isn't that, isn't that fantastic? That's what the Williamstown um, shipyards, they've been angry about this for uh, close on a number of years, knowing perfectly well that this is what the direction is. And, of course, this is part of the neoliberal agenda that... Uh, it doesn't matter where you uh, put your money, as long as, obviously, you don't invest in your own people. There you go. Um, now we've got to get on with this is the week that was, or we'll get another call saying that uh, we're letting the side down. A weak solidarity, Bricky Team listener, when the bottomless depths to which the socialists will descend was exposed after big supremo Malcolm Tunner Bull very sensibly discovered the solution to young people finding housing unaffordable. It's so simple when we think about it. Their parents can buy them a house. So simple, it's a wonder someone else didn't think of it years ago, but it also shows just how brilliant, how lateral a thinker our big supremo is. And yet, what thanks did he get from the socialists for solving a major problem many thought intractable? 
scorn, sneering socialist scorn. Allegations he was removed from reality, didn't know how the other half lived. Well, the other 90% or more lived. Politics of envy, claims that most parents not only couldn't afford to buy their kids a house, but many couldn't even afford one themselves. Have we ever heard such commie rot? An underhand way, I suggest, of the socialists continuing their surreptitious attacks on Christian marriage, on the true Christian family, attacks on true marriage between a man and a woman. But thankfully, big economic supremo scuttled them more lash than sprang to Malcolm's defence. Class warfare will ruin us. He was very upset. True blue Aussies are over class warfare. Well, nothing could be more obvious than stating that many, many, many parents wouldn't be able to buy their kids a house is as nasty, envious class warfare as we can imagine. And Malcolm and Scuttle them, long-term opponents of class warfare, long-term aware that caring employers and lazy, avaricious workers have identical interests, saw right through it. But didn't we all await breathlessly the budget, the growth and jobs budget, which is all about growth and jobs, because what this country needs is growth and jobs. So the budget will deliver growth and jobs, while the profligate socialists will only deliver waste and big spending we can't afford, which won't generate growth and jobs, which is what this country needs, and which the budget will provide, and the rich will get a tax cut the very day before the election, which the minister for something or other, or well, for being a minister, I guess, Christopher Payne in the said was a pure coincidence reflecting the government's commitment to growth and jobs. And tax cuts for the rich were the big handout to the poor, the penurious, the lazy, avaricious workers who would then be better off for the tax cuts would provide growth and jobs. And day after day, some caring business class think taker other tells us all evidence goes to the only beneficiaries of tax cuts for the rich being the poor, the ingrate poor, like young unemployed. Uh, yes, have you made the dole more livable? Well, yes and no. We have cut the dollar and all pensions and welfare payments for that matter, but only because these bludgers on the public good were whooping it up on a subsidy for the evil, destroying society, raising electricity prices a millionfold carbon tax. In other words, stealing a subsidy for something that doesn't exist, and let's hope the socialists don't win, or we'll all see our electricity prices increase a millionfold, and society will end, and doll budgets will get back a subsidy they don't deserve. But yes, because we are giving thousands to caring employers for taking on the lazy doll budgets as interns. Is that to compensate for the pay these young people will receive for working for them? Good God, no, it's a handout for not paying them. Uh, then why are they called interns? Uh, because uh, after a caring employer receives the first handout, she or he or it will then get another worker in turn for whom she or he or it will receive more thousands and then in turn after that worker, she or he or it will... Right, right, scuttle them, I've got it. Uh, yes, but, but wait, wait, there's more. If one of these caring employers ever does actually employ the young bludger, then we will also pay the wage bill. 
all this will add billions to the social welfare bill, even allowing for the cuts they'll actually receive, showing just how much we care about the door bludgers. Still, when it's a choice of starvation or security, we can be sure the penurious would much rather starve, knowing they are safe, secure. So, on budgets, these submarines, $50 billion worth, and I suggest growing, any wonder those welfare bludgers have to starve, don't we all feel more safe this week? But even better news, it was revealed the French option was chosen because their train killer subs were the only ones of the three tenders that can easily be converted to nuclear power. Or, as the Trublawazi capitalist review in a news story opened, some of Trublawazi's new submarines could be nuclear-powered by the time they enter service, making them much more potent against the huge Chinese Navy. Good of the capitalist review journos Aaron Patrick and Philip Curry and their editorial Falfax Masters to let us know who the enemy is, why we need to spend trillions on train killing. Although... It may not be necessary, because this U.S. of the U.N. of the U.S. of the world train killer, working class, although we know, as Scuttledem and Malcolm confirmed, there is no such thing as class, U.S. of cannon fodder person on telly, talking through his array of train killer equipment, told us why the U.S. of cannon fodder were informally evil, 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 until we liberated it now, good, 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 liberty, freedom and democracy, Iraq, leaving us to ponder why we stroke they need to be there at all. We are fighting for everybody on behalf of the world. And on behalf of the world, aren't we thankful? No brainwashing in the free world. That's restricted to the terrorists who hate liberty, freedom and democracy on the specious grounds that we keep invading and slaughtering them. We've become accustomed to the tragic reporting of any cream of Trublawazi youth, brave young man or woman in uniform, think they've all been men, life of the party, loves their family and dear little children, trained killer, trained killed by the ingrates we invade, who should be out on the streets cheering us, strewing our path with flowers using the owl, the third person a bit loosely listener, national tragedy, coffins unloaded, mournful dirges, the warmongers who send them expressing their sympathy at the farewell. But a, but a young 24-year-old Trubli was, he was killed in Iraq last week. And the Lord Rupert of Wapping, sin, sympathetic, what a tragedy report, all over P1 Thursday. Cop that! Airstrike kills Aussie Jihad chief! Then screaming headline, Hellfire Justice! Australia's most wanted terrorist, Melbourne-born Neil Prakash, has been obliterated in an American airstrike in Iraq. And it went on to say how wonderful it was that a 20-something sister of a terrorist had also been killed by a US of airstrike in Syria. These people whose deaths we celebrate are obviously the sour cream of Trublawazi youth, craven young men and women not in uniform. There was a headline in the Wapping Sin one morning, talk about imbalance. And I thought, oh, a bit of self-reflection, but no, item about Walt Disney movies. Well, Lord Rupert hates imbalance. That's why he balanced not one word about May Day with coverage, with picky, of Erica Packer's true love romance with Seal. She's just so happy, he's just so wonderful. The latest royal young mum, 
with Picky on the cover of Vogue and what she's wearing and who made it, and a, quote, sexy lingerie model, naturally with Picky, opening a new sexy lingerie shop in one of our great department stores, telling us how excited she was and everyone should wear sexy lingerie, and also telling us who was making what she's wearing to the Logies, presumably over the sexy lingerie we should all wear. So how could the International Day of Working People compete with such real hard news? Oh, and there were also people racing Puffing Billy. As the no-proper-papers, queue-jumping, illegal boat people whom True Blue Aussie policy prevents from drowning in the ocean drown instead in misery on terra firma, emphasis on terror, our great humanitarian minister for concentration camps, raise a wire and sink the boats, Peter Duffer, made the same connection. Terror, you said it. These people are, you know, like terrorists and they are being driven to suicide and desperate measures by the long-haired, commie, greeny, wooden working in iron, black armband, goody-goodies who, you know, like egg them on, who, who incite them. These terrorists, these illegal people whose lives we have saved, would live contentedly in the Manus Island Paradise Holiday Resort and the Nauru Tropical Holiday Resort and the Christmas Island Home Away From Home Holiday Resort if it wasn't for these, you know, like goody-goodies who lack our humanity interfering and not letting them get on with their, like, lives. It was cruel, inhumane, Peter said, to give false hope to people who had no hope. These goody-goody, black-armband, anti-troubler-wiser, you know, like traitors, are abusing the most basic principles of human rights by allowing these people, well, in many ways these non-people, to believe they just may have some human rights. Peter also said True Blue Aussie would assist the PNG government to carry out the Supreme Court decision. Even though this and the Manus Island Paradise Resort have, you know, absolutely nothing to do with True Blue Aussie. Uh, Pete, the, the court said the Manus Island Detention Centre, correction, the Manus Island Paradise Holiday Resort, whatever, said it must be closed forthwith. What's your definition of forthwith? Ah, uh, my word, it sounds like Pete's on top of that one. Finally, also heard Minister for Financing Capitalism, Matthias rotten asked about overall education cuts under this government. In education, money is no guarantee of results. Why, in Belgium, they spend lots of money on education and look at me. Good point, Matthias. Although, do we have to? Good morning. Oh, that's a hoot. <laughs> I know he managed to have me laughing with um, pain and anguish, I think. That's right. And we've got Noah on the line. How are you, Mr. Noah Pazil? I'm very well. Thank you very much, Annie. Yeah. Morning. Good morning. <laughs> that's Who are you Kim. with you this morning? Kim. Kim. Hello, Kim. How are you? I'm good. Yeah. Well, that was the truth, wasn't it, Dr. Noah Pazil? The last bit, you know, look at me. Yes, yes. Well, uh... I, I think the most uh, probably pertinent example of the failure of that model is what's happening in the US today with the rise of Donald Trump. <laughs> uh, I can't help but start with the, tri the tri triumph of Trump or Trump's Trump trumping everyone else. I don't know what sort of 
headline you want to use, but it's appalling, really, when you think about it. Yeah, well, it's interesting because there's uh, been uh, reports of... uh major strikes in uh, places like Chicago around education because all the neoliberal politicians are uh, seeking to steal all the money that goes to public education and uh, force the population to go into private education. Oh, these chartered schools. Yeah, they're, they're just an appalling idea. I mean, we've seen all the evidence over the last however many years from OECD reports and elsewhere, that the best education systems are those that are funded by the state. Scandinavia, um, Germany, elsewhere, they have the highest, uh, both the highest uh, outcomes in terms of literacy and other uh, core skills, but also in terms of building a sort of sense of social fabric and and, um, sense of well-being for the population. I mean, you know, it's just a, the evidence is just so overwhelming, um, yet we seem to ignore it, uh, both in terms of our political elites and also um, the media who just have, seem not to have the gumption to stand up for something as fundamental as, um, as uh, state, state-funded education. Well, it's, uh, I think uh, if you did a uh, survey of the people who work in the media, uh, non-community media, but uh, the mainstream media, I think you'd probably find that a majority of them send their children to private schools. Yeah, probably. I mean, I think there was... When Mark Latham came out years ago and uh, uh, in the election campaign, it must have been 2004, uh, said that he was going to shift uh, uh, state funding, uh, um, Commonwealth funding for schools uh, from private schools to uh, public schools and there was a huge uproar over it. I think that was a good indication of how invested most journalists and uh, media outlets were in private education. Yeah, and I... I mean, I, the plan wasn't uh, in any way radical. It was, a I don't know, a 15% shift of... Uh, money that goes to private schools to public schools and you know just the backlash against him from the uh, popular press was just incredible yeah incredible and not not to mention that uh, I mean really and truly if people want to send their children to private schools they're quite uh, open to do that but uh, why public money has to be put in there to invest in private schools and the uh, idea that uh, putting public money into private schools and then having absolutely no control over the product is uh, against capitalist principles, I would have thought. I mean, I'd go further and say we should not have private schools. Oh, well, that's interesting. Yeah, go for it. Well, I mean, I, I, I think, you know, if we do take uh, secularism, all, almost all private schools are denominational. Yeah, that's right. Um, and I think that denominational, it actually leads to further division within, or division within a, in any society, uh, fundamental divisions around some core values. And if you're going to build a secular, tolerant, inclusive society, you've, you need, uh, I think you need to build those core values. Uh, and they don't have to be universal, but there has to be a dialogue around them. And I don't think we have that dialogue in this country now at the moment with... So many students, I think the latest statistics suggest that uh, we've, there are more students in private schools in Australia than public schools for the first time. Um, it's just, just over 51%, I think I read somewhere, um, which means that, you know, 
half of our population are divided up into different denominational schools. Now, I, you know, whether it's um, Anglican or Muslim, it doesn't really, it really matters little to me. I, I think in either case, um, it's not about individual rights. It's about what sort of collective um, project or what sort of collective identity you want to produce. I'm not saying that we all have to agree on everything, but at the moment we have such division around some core principles that... Um, and we don't even have a dialogue around them that I think this is potentially quite divisive. Yeah, I mean, it's scary as well when uh, you see things like the way that the um, Safe Schools Coalition, uh, what really should be proper, you know, state-run programs. Um, instead, we have all this crap that we got from uh, Tony Abbott about mm. chaplains and so on, and Absolutely. this is what our young people are facing in schools. I know that's slightly off-topic, but I think it um, is relevant to what you're saying about creating... Uh, really inclusive um, society that really doesn't have anything to do with these private niche interests. I agree. I agree. I think it's not off topic, Kim. I think it's essentially what that uh, effort was trying to do was to, uh, well, one, it was an ideological project to to deepen the sort of religiosity of younger people. Um, but secondly, and to, I think, erode secularism um, in Australia, but also it, it just indicated how... Um, I think unconscious um, the political class is around the importance of education as the sort of core fundamental principle in many ways of our secular um, society. Uh, and that's what private schools does as well. It, it, it commodifies education. And I think secularism isn't just about the division between religion and um, and the state, but also the division between or, or the separation of the market and the state. Well, you are, I think it's actually incredibly uh, significant what you've just said there because there's a whole range of things. Uh, there was this push, uh, uh, I think about 10 years ago, and this is bipartisan, That uh, and I had an argument with someone about this at the time, that uh, educa- education for the sake of being educated is a nonsense, they were saying to me. Uh, it, it should always be about getting a job. Well, I think that, that that is the nonsense. That is absolutely the nonsense. I mean, we want employed people, no doubt, and people need to have productive and fulfilling lives. Uh, no one questions that. But edu- uh, people who have productive and um, fulfilling lives usually have core values and skills that un- underpin their, their actual knowledge. I mean, much of what we do... Um, and principles, and I, I think those are the things that carry people through their lives as much as uh, particular vocational skills. Um, you know, people's ability to, live, to, to think creatively and critically, their, their ability to, to uh, reflect and uh, um, sort of ponder major questions. I, those are the things that we're losing in this generation of uh, young people who... Uh, forced into this vocational um, sort of direction very, very early, but also who are uh, sort of tied to a social media um, um, sort of schooling and, and social uh, environment where everything has to be immediate or, or short term. And I, I think one of the uh, my one of my most instructive moments, I think, as a student was to take one text and study it for an entire semester. Oh wow! Yeah, and just to ponder it and to 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 ask deep questions about its meaning, we don't do that in tertiary education anymore, and I doubt they do it 
that's secondary. It's just that ability to think through things in really deep and meaningful and holistic ways that I think is being lost. And um, it's people who do that, I think, who have really rewarding and fulfilling life, who, who, who have the time to do that every now and then, who have the most rewarding and fulfilling uh, sort of um, lives, both in terms of their professional lives and their personal ones. You know, when you said that thing about social media and uh, 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 immediacy, when things have to be there immediately, it reminded me of uh, that uh, early stage in uh, humans' development where they have to learn about impulse control and that people who are, are damaged, who are psychologically damaged, generally speaking, have a real problem with impulse control. <laughs> Is that uh, something that's happening right across the society, maybe? Um, possibly. I, I, I'm not sure. I mean, I think... I, yeah, I don't want to overstate that effect. When I was growing up, and, and possibly when the two of you were growing up, people said that the, the television would addle the brain. Yeah, that's right. Um, and that it would ruin young people. Well, you know, I come from that generation. I watched a fair bit of television when I was young. I mean, I read and did other things as well, but it, it, maybe it addled my brain, but I think it, I, it still works to some extent. I mean, <laughs> I, I, we should know, I don't think we should overstate that because, I mean, I've seen also, I've read things recently about young people. Um, uh, sort of repudiating social media, you know, saying, well, look, we're not going to go on Facebook. We want to actually have more sort of, we don't want to have virtual lives. Um, so, you know, I think there's a reaction to it as well that's often um, that's often missed in some of the commentary. Yeah, I think um, from my experience, young people are actually, well, they're more aware of privacy issues and things like that on yeah. social media. Um, I think that's why there's kind of been a shift to things like, uh, Snapchat, which um, people think are really fatty, which maybe it is, but it also deletes your messages. Did you say fatty or fatty? Fatty. <laughs> no, it's not edible. Sorry. Snapchat, it does sound like it's edible. Sorry about that. I think uh, actually there's a lot of cynicism with with young people, and I think possibly that has far more to do with the political climate in which they've grown up mm. with and rather than the technological. Yeah, uh, indeed. And we saw that with the Arab uprisings or the Occupy movement, which were largely driven by younger people saying... You know, there's no hope, there's no sense of direction, there's no purpose, there's no shared project for our societies anymore. And we want some of that. We want to feel like, you know, we live in times where there there is some purpose. And I, mean, I think, again, that's the narrative that was sort of left out of much of the events of those those years when people did get get out on the streets. And yes, it was driven by social media, but the impact of it wasn't social me. It wasn't from the social media. It was from people on the streets. And, oh, that's um, true. That's true. You know, um, it wasn't social media that toppled um, Hosni Mubarak. It was millions of people on the street day after day after day. Um, and the yeah. same, you know, and, and the same in in other places. It's well, actually, media. when the internet was shut down in Egypt, as I'm sure you know, actually that was when the revolution started surging ahead. Absolutely. I mean, you know, that's the, you know, that, that, that was the defining moment. People were so worried about their friends and family and they couldn't get in touch with them. They decided that the only option was to go out on the street themselves. And it turned what was, a, you know, a, a relatively uh, manageable protest into one that was just so overwhelming that, that Mubarak, had, Mubarak had to fold. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it, it is incredible how we sort of, we tend, well, not we, not us, but the sort of popular um, and the pervasive narrative is that social media is responsible, has been responsible, or is 
determining people's actions. I think it's the other way around. People are using social media in very sophisticated and interesting ways. So what you're really saying is that the uh, dominant message that the popular media uh, per- uh, purveys is actually the message that's coming from the ruling ruling class. Shall I use the word ruling class? That's the message they take from it. Yeah, I think so. And I think also that, you know, for 30 or 40 years we've had a narrative that, not, you know, that people are driven by, um, you know, or, or, or people are unable to change things. What, yeah. it's, you know, the market and these forces, that, these inexorable forces that live above us determine our actions. And I think a lot of commentators have just included or inserted the social media into that idea that there's this sort of global process that we fit into rather than actually have any impact on. And I think that's a completely disempowering... Uh, one, I think it's a, it's, it's an inaccurate representation of the world. Secondly, I think it's a very disempowering one, and the purpose of it, in a way, is not in a way, the purpose is to disempower people and make them feel like they're helpless. It's Thatcher's, there is no alternative um, playing out. That we, we can't change the world. The world is so big and, and sophisticated and global that individuals and communities don't have, stand a chance. Yeah, that, I, that reminds that me a lot of the Egyptian revolution because I think it was, uh, was it either the, I think it was in the Times that was saying that a month before the revolution that this is the most passive generation in a decade in Egypt, which was completely thrown on its head. But the way that you hear it, I think, quite a bit in Australia is with this talk of the millennials. And they talk about how they've been, you know, chucked out of the housing market. Oh, but they're the generation of, you know, selfies. And, you know, they expect everything to be handed to them. So it's their own fault. Well, I think they're trying to play off the um, baby boomers against millennials and try and create false divides, really, when actually all of us are getting uh, screwed over. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting point, Kim, that the wedge politics, sometimes we see the wedge politics only in class or in ethnic terms, um, you know, that governments play uh, mainstream Australia off against, uh, you know, welfare, you know, people on welfare, or they play uh, mainstream Australia off against, uh, you know, Muslim minority. But there's probably a generational wedge politics being played there, and I think that's a really interesting point you make. Because, um, um, you know, in times when... There is no project and there's no way of uh, sort of driving people together um, or bringing people together. If there's not an inclusive project, the only way, well, one of the most effective ways for governments to maintain their legitimacy, for the ruling class to maintain its legitimacy, is to play wedge politics. And I think that's what they're doing very, very... They're trying to do incredibly um, um, sort of consistently at the moment. We've seen that with the... um, I think with the tax cuts in the budget and the and and um, you know the, the sort of the, the further effort to try and tie the aspirational class to the the ruling class project, um, I don't think it'll. Well, it doesn't look like it's working. So they may turn to some more traditional wedge politics around asylum seekers, um, Muslim, the Muslim threat or terrorist threat, and, and those sort of um, very effective ways. Of, um, uh, of sort of distracting people from the real economic issues that they face every day. Yeah, well, someone said to me last night that they thought that uh, the budget was, well, this is what their, t- their words, that it was a, so- a soft cock budget for the middle class. 
Yeah, well, I mean, if you look at the statistics, the, though, in terms of who benefits most, it's certainly at the top, the top end of the in, sort of, of, of um, um, income earners and people who, um, I think, uh, something I read yesterday or the day before said that something like 75% of the tax cuts uh, go to the top 10% of wage earners. Yeah, uh, right. Uh, you know, it's really... And, and then the corporate tax cuts, which are um, pre, sort of part of that plan, really do deliver uh, some benefit, most of the benefit to the um, to the, the most affluent in our society. Um, and the subtle things in there around, uh, which you mentioned earlier, you know, shifting funds so that people are inclined to private schooling uh, or private education, private health care, uh, you know the sort of um, uh, the more subtle ways of shifting people. Um, uh, sorry, uh, of of in, uh, making edu- uh, healthcare user pay. All those things that are built into the budget. Um, I don't think it's middle class because the middle class is actually their their economic. Um, I think their econ- economic con- uh, situation is being eroded all the time. Yeah, yeah, I think so too. Um, something I read the other day was. Um, or, or a week or so ago around the US, which I think is really instructive for us here as well, because we're, we're following that pattern, is that the middle class in the US, and they gave a definition of what the middle class was, ha- have actually seen a real uh, fall in their um, wages over the last, t- from 1999 until uh, to 2015, of 15%. Yeah, that's a lot. Mm, that's uh, the middle lot. class is increasingly falling, um, and the wowthiest sort of ten, fifteen percent are uh, becoming even more, uh, even richer. So the division between the middle class and the and and the wealthy. So what uh, they're doing is trying to create a new feudal state. Yeah, well, I mean, I think if you look at the U.S. and the sort of reactions that people are having to inequality, they're not having them around the economic system. They're having them around. The, I mean, the Republican Party is is has and, and the, the sort of the candidates such as Trump have convinced people that the problem is with the the, the fact that the American ethos is not stronger. You know, that individualism, inter, inter um, entrepreneurialism, um, and that it's all the, all the problems come from immigration and you know the sort of uh, underclass that are sucking out the the sort of um, di- dynamism of the U.S. system. The reality is that neoliberalism has failed. Yeah, it has it's failed in the U.S. and it's failed globally. It is probably far a far greater failure than the socialist systems that uh, collapsed in the nineteen eighties, um, in in a, in a whole range of ways. Uh, the question is, how long can it survive before it to whether this whether sorry how long it can survive before the crisis that we've seen over the last eight years, the GFC, or, or how long can the victims of the uh, neoliberal experiment? Uh, have to continue to try and resuscitate the body. I mean, it's well, pretty I mean, grim. The, the way they resuscitated it in the 1920s after the Great Depression was to move towards totalitarianism and global conflict. Um, I'm not saying we're heading in that direction, but the rise of right-wing parties and of sort of neo-fascist parties like the Tea Party in the US and the sort of, uh, the sort of ethos of people like Trump... And the Austria, you know, the rise of the right in Austria and yeah. Germany and elsewhere is really, for me, is one of the most scary, scary phenomenons we have in the world today. Yeah, well, actually, someone else said to me this week that uh, Trump is America's version of Hitler. Yeah, I, I mean, I, 
you know, in a, in a 2007-16 context where, you know, you, you know the, the sort of... Uh, I, I would say he's more a Mussolini. Oh, right, yep. In the sense that, you know, that we won't see the sort of rabid, violent racism in the same way. I mean, he's racist, there's no doubt about it. Um, but, you know, he, he will present a, a ruling class solution to the problems of the U.S. that very much drives, uh, you know, profits and big business. And it'll be an alliance between the uh, alienated white middle class and poor and the, the, the richest, uh, very small richest uh, um, uh, class in the U.S. at the same time. And that follows the... And in that way, it follows the sort of fascist model. Trotsky wrote um, some fascinating stuff about um, um, fascism and the rise of fascism, and he said that the most important class in any fascist state was the petty bourgeoisie, mm. um, and that they, they, they really were the vanguard of the... Yeah. The level of resentment that they mm. can store. Yeah. I think, though, that um, obviously Trump doesn't have the same kind of grassroot or foot soldiers and, and that kind of that um, is anything like the Nazi party. I think uh, what's really what I found interesting lately is the way that the ruling class is obviously supporting Hillary Clinton. Um, yeah. This gets shitless. Yeah, I think, though, that I suspect that if um, Trump got in, which I don't think he will, that he would actually moderate a lot of his rhetoric. Um, yeah. He used to agree with Hillary um, and the Clintons on a bunch of things and change them basically. He's happy to change anything that he says to grab that popularist vote. Yeah, yeah. But I think he would actually do basically what big business wants him to do if he got in. Yeah, thing. I think so. If Bill was here now, he would talk about Bonapartism. Yeah, <laughs> go on, go. Um, which is maybe w what we can talk about next time. Um, yeah. Because I think Trump is, in some ways, a reflection of that sort of populist um, uh, sort of almost. He, he's almost he's outside the political class, which gives him some kudos. Uh, but he's also within it, of course. You know, he's an economic elite. Um, he's an archetypal um, economic elite in the U.S. as well. Uh, the so-called myth of the self-made billionaire. We know that we know that's a myth in his case, but that's how it plays out for people. Um, but he, he also, he reflects the interests of the ruling class in a way that really does um, obscure uh, his relationship to them, yeah. um, which I, you know, I think is his strength as a, for, in terms of bringing that disillusioned uh, white minority, now minority in the US, into, uh, the, political, um, in, into the political game. The reason I think the Republicans are are really quite scared is they know that Trump can't beat Clinton. I don't think they disagree with him all that much. They'll be quite happy for him to win, but mm. I know he's an outsider and they, they do worry about some of his uh, tendencies, but I just can't see him winning because the big question for him and for the Republican Party is how does he get out the evangelical base? Mm. This and is really the, the monster that they've actually created themselves. That's right, absolutely. I mean, without that e evangelical base... The, the Republican Party cannot win a federal uh, a federal election or a presidential election. What are they the most deluded? Well, they're most deluded. Well, yes, <laughs> but, but they're they're also a block 
that will vote Republican with the right candidate. Right. Mm-hmm. And, you know, some people put that block at somewhere between 15 and 20% of, US, of the US population. I think that people often say that um, one reason why American politics can seem a bit more crazy is because they don't have compulsory voting, so they just have to get, in some ways, get out a militant kind of minority. Yes, indeed. And and whether Clinton can get out a militant minority like Obama did in in both elections, um, we're we're not certain about because, I mean, Obama did really, especially in that 2007 election, he really mobilised a grassroots base, you know, door-to-door it was really grassroots door-to-door um, mobilisation, and it worked very well. And he was able to do that to some extent um, in in his second in the election that gave him his second term. Don't know if Clinton's going to be able to do that, um, and that I think is a concern for the Democrats. On the other side, I think the Republicans know that without the evangelical base, uh, Trump is dead in the water. He's doomed. Uh, um, we'll have to we'll have to leave it there because we've got so few minutes to go before the end well, of the show. Oh, it's great to talk to you again, Dr. Brilliant. Noah. Brilliant. Thank you very much, Annie and Kim. Always a pleasure. Thanks, and we Noah. will. We'll talk about Bonapartism next time. Brilliant. Thank you very much. See you, guys. See ya. Bye. Now, that was uh, Dr. Noah Pasil returning, and we really do have very little time to go. Uh, we have to remind you what we had on the show today. We had uh, Dr. Deborah Gleeson, who was talking about the TPP. We uh, went to the May Day and uh, talked to people in the crowd and uh, got a listen to one of the uh, speak- speakers. And uh, this is the week that was. And then, of course, a wonderful conversation with Dr. Noah Pasil. Coming up next is Asia Pacific Currents. Are you going to say goodbye? Oh, see you, everyone. We're going to go out with um, uh, We Started a Fire, Vicka and Linda Bull. This uh, next song, Linda's going to sing for you. She's a huge fan of reggae, listens to it every day. And uh, this song's about being unfaithful and hopefully not getting caught. (laughs) It's called We've Started a Fire. listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.